Hello, and thank you for tuning into Cesari Direct's podcast. Today we sit down with our CEO, Rick Cesari, and COO, Jane Schloth, to talk a little bit about the George Foreman Grill. In the next few minutes, you will hear funny behind-the-scenes stories of working with the champ and gain valuable marketing insight as to what goes into making an iconic campaign like the George Foreman Grill. Stay tuned. Well, thank you both for taking the time out of your busy schedules and joining me today. Let's go ahead and dive right in. Obviously, the George Foreman Grill is a household name now, but back in the mid-90s, it wasn't. Tell me a little bit about how it all got started. Okay. Well, the George Foreman story, there's a, there's a lot of funny things we're going to talk about today, kind of the behind the scenes that a lot of people haven't heard of before. But just to kind of give you an overview of um, how we got started with the George Foreman Project, I had uh, owned a company called Trillium Health Products that made the Juice Man Juicer and Bread Man Bread Machine. Salton Housewares uh, purchased that from us in 1993, and they liked the way we were doing marketing, which was a lot of television marketing, and it was new, new for the time, um, and they saw the effect it had on, on, on the retail. And so they came, uh, shortly after they bought the company, they came back to us with two products. One was a homemade bagel maker, and the other one was, at the time, a taco maker. And it turned out that the taco maker, uh, after a lot of discussions, turned into the George Foreman Grill. Um, the reason it, it, it was a taco maker, it was slanted, it stayed up on your counter, and the idea was you could scrape hamburger meat into a taco shell. Uh, we, through a lot of discussions with, with um, their head of marketing, Barb Westfield, um, decided that we would use that slanted on the grill to, as a way of draining the fat away the, from the food, and that's how the George Foreman grill was, was, was born. Um, but what a lot of people know, if you look online, there's an old saying, um, uh, success has many fathers, but failure's an orphan, and George is one of the most successful television campaigns of all time, and there's, you know, a lot of people take credit for that. But to be honest with you, uh, Cesare Response Television was the very first um, company or agency to produce a show for George. And we produced his first 10 infomercials and lots of short form spots and even a spot that ran on the Super Bowl. Um, but, you know, the business stuff about George and the George Foreman Grill is well documented through lots of books and today Jane and I want to talk about some of the funny behind the thing scenes that a lot of people don't know about. Okay. Well, so I've always wondered. Our offices are located here in Seattle and right now we're in the conference room looking out onto a beautiful view of Puget Sound. But if I had to wager money, I would guess that the offices weren't always quite so picturesque. Yeah, that, that's, a, that's a great question. Um, it was funny. Back then, um, I had mentioned earlier that we sold the company to Sultan, and I took a little bit of time off and didn't do anything. And we kept getting asked by people, oh, can you do this type of marketing for us? And so I was living in a house, a big four or five bedroom old uh, Queen Anne house on top of Queen Anne Hill. And um, we had actually started the company uh, from that house. And um, uh, the offices were, I, I think I, the master bedroom was where I slept, but then the other offices, uh, other bedrooms were all offices. And Jane can tell you about her office. She, she, yeah. I didn't, didn't you have like the, the baby's corner office? Yeah. I think it was the, yeah, the kid's room or something. Yeah. Yeah. I lived in an apartment probably about a block away. So it was a great commute. I just used to walk over there. 
But at the time, I just got back from Alaska, and and Rick literally called me the day I landed and said, hey, I got something I want to work with you with, and ended up working there and had a great office on that Queen Anne uh, office not far from here. Actually, we're on Lower Queen Anne now, but that's uh, we're kind of back. Yeah, there, there were some really funny things, but one, one of the f- funny things that stands out is um, – uh, Sultan had made out some life-size cutouts of George Foreman that were going to be, um, you know, end of the aisles. You'd see a cutout of George, and that would direct people to the grill. And they sent us one because we were going to use it on the original set. And I just had it set up in the living room of the of this house I was living in, a residential house. Well, neighbors would drive by the street, and they'd look through the window, and they would see this giant cutout of a, of a man and somebody actually called the police because they thought there was a prowler in the house, and it turned out it was just a cutout of George. I know it scared a couple of people, too. Uh, I, another thing about George, I remember, uh, this is way back, I was, I was working part of my day doing some media stuff and some other stuff for production. It was, I think, a Monday. We were supposed to shoot the infomercial on that Saturday, that weekend, here in Seattle. Rick, <laughs> Rick came down the hall from his bedroom office <laughs> and said, hey, Gene, we gotta get a, we got to find a robe that will fit George that doesn't have any logos on it. Otherwise, we have to pay a copyright fee. We have to get permission to use, you know, whatever logos on, on the robe. Um, and we need to have this, like, immediately. It has to be here by Saturday. So this was 1995. This is before the Internet really took hold. Um, so that boxing robe that he's wearing was actually found just through the yellow pages. I'd contacted somebody here locally, just a boxing ring, said, hey, where do you get your robes made? He directed me to somebody in Kansas City, which was a phone call, called this guy in Kansas City, told him who it was for. It was FedEx within two days, and we had it, um, you know, within two days and ready for the, the shoot on Saturday. And that's when Rick said, you're in production. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, a good, a good producer can solve any problem. And, that, and uh, believe me, it was a lot tougher in the pre-internet days to, to get quickly turn around things like that. So that, that worked out great. Well, I grew up in a boxing family. So George Foreman was a household name way before we even had one of his grills. And I've always wanted to know, what was it like meeting the heavyweight champ? You know, when, when you think about the heavyweight uh, champion of the world, you always envision what you see on TV, somebody walking around with a big entourage and loud and boisterous and lots of gold chains and that type of thing. And George was a very quiet, down-to-earth soft-spoken man. I, I One of the things I remember distinctly was the first time I shook his hand, and it was like <clears throat> shaking hand with a grizzly bear. My hand just disappeared inside of his hand, and I remember his, his grip, and I, I didn't know if I would ever survive the uh, the first handshake with him. But George just traveled with uh, one other person that, that would help him and you know, with luggage and things like that, and was very low key. And one thing that people didn't know about George is he was basically, there was 10 years between his bout, I think, in Zaire and and when he regained the heavyweight championship where he was out of boxing. And um, what he did was he taught a sermon every Sunday in downtown uh, Houston. And um, Jane always used to comment that, uh, or asked him one time why he always wore a tie. And it's because he was... Uh, Really, what he still did, even after he, he got the heavyweight championship of the world, he still taught a sermon when he was home every Sunday in, in downtown Houston. And so he was just a really good uh, human being that way. Yeah, and he always said, he goes, you'll never see me in public without a tie on. Like anything, any promotional photos you see of him, he always has a tie on. And for whatever reason, he just likes that look and 
refuses to wear anything yeah. else. So, so off screen, George was really quiet, but, but Jane will tell you a funny story that, uh, about how he created his on screen persona. Oh yeah. So, uh, this was, I think the original shoot, it was during some downtime on the set and we were talking with George about, uh, he was explaining to us how he learned how to act, how to be, you know, turn his personality on in front of the camera. And it was, um, he credited it to Bob Hope. He said he was doing some award event or some event in a hotel um, recently or, or may, actually many years ago. And Bob Hope and him were working together rehearsing for this award show. And Bob Hope basically said, hey, come with me. He followed him down the hall and went into a ballroom, kind of locked him in there. And he, he said, hey, let's just keep going over the lines you have to have to present. He kept doing it, but he kept him in there for hours and hours. And finally, George got so mad that when he, re he recited his lines, he recited them the way Bob wanted him to, which was with passion. He turned himself on. You know, he, he had this uh, look in his eyes. So Bob said, that's it. That's exactly what you should be doing. So uh, George had always credited that he learned how to act on camera because of Bob Hope. That, that memory always kind of stood out with me. Yeah, that was cool. And it really did translate because George, as I mentioned, would be really, really quiet off camera you would get him on there and you'd say action and this big personality would come out, you know, smile from ear to ear, the things that things that people remember about George and they really like about him. He would just turn on this television persona, not that it was fake, but just that George was a was a great student. And this was something that Bob Hope had taught him and he really delivered it on camera. So in advertising, our goal is to make the shot look absolutely perfect. But behind the scenes, we all know sometimes things can get a little hectic. You guys have any great stories from behind the scenes of the George Foreman shoot? Yeah, we, uh, so there's a lot involved for anybody who does production, particularly with food. There's a lot involved with food. It's like having another actor. So we have food stylists on set, and we have to make sure not only do the actors have to be ready, but the food has to be hot and steaming and look perfect So for that you know two or three minute window when we're actually filming it. We had a little bit of uh, a little bit of a hiccup in the beginning of the shoot because George kept eating the food <laughs> on the set, so we, we had a little bit of delayed time there because you know no one's going to tell George don't eat that. Yeah. <laughs> so we just kind of let him eat and munch away. So um, yeah, that was that was one thing that sort of delayed the production, but. Um, I don't know, Rick, do you have anything yeah. else? Well, the other thing is that, that it was styled food, so um, <laughs> a lot of times the food had, uh, I don't know what they put on it, if it's shellac or, or something, or something yeah. but they, they, it's like perfectly styled and it's got spray on it so it stays looking nice and fresh. And uh, we had to tell George not to eat that, but, it, but um, it, that was something he had a tendency to do. And it actually paid off later because um, after the first few infomercials had run, uh, George was on QVC and they could actually measure uh, reaction immediately to everything that was being said or done. And one of the interesting things that happened was that every time George took a bite of a hamburger or a bite of what was being cooked on his grill, sales would spike. So we got that information, and whenever we made future shows, we had as many close-up shots of George eating as, as we could. We learned to put do not eat signs on the food <laughs> so George would know what he could eat and what he couldn't eat. But he was always professional. Like Rick said, he, he was always um, very cordial, very quiet, very humble guy, and not at all like the persona you might, like, kind of angry or mad. He, I never saw that from him. Yeah. One, one of the things that was interesting, um, you know, it was my job to be the director on, on the shoots. And a lot of times you uh, do a take, and uh, the, the, what the actor does might be perfect, 
but there might be some technical issue that's wrong, so you have to do a retake. Or you just do one for safety. You say, oh, that was great, let's do another one. Or you just say, that was great, let's do another one just to have another take to, to give you some options when you're editing. Well, one of the things with George is, um, because of his background with how he learned to act and the story from Bob Hope, is George only wanted to do one take because he felt that he was always giving you his best. So as a director, it made it really difficult um, because George was do, would give you his best take and 99% of the time he said the right thing and his stuff was good, but there was always, because you're dealing with food and grills and extras on the set, there was always something else. So it was always difficult to get him to do more than one take and it was something we had to, to, to really work with when we were producing these shows. And he also, just for people on the crew, I mean, he was always nice to everybody. Anybody just walking around in Seattle when he was here during that time, we had, an audi we had audience members that, we can't, that came in. That was easy to find audience members. They all wanted to meet George. But when we had downtime, he was happy to take pictures with them and, you know, sign autographs. And there was a, one particular moment I remember we were down for whatever reason. We were resetting the stage or something. And somebody in the audience, you know, very thrilled to meet George, had asked him, hey, what do you... Are you ever going to go back to boss, boxing? Are you going to keep doing this? And George said, doing this beats getting, you know, is better than getting beat in the face every day. <laughs> it was a, yeah, very, it was very, a very honest uh, answers to a lot of questions that we, we would ask. Him. And that was before he made a lot of money. I mean, oh, that yeah. That was like yeah, before absolutely. he even knew if this was even going to take off. Yeah. He didn't then even. You checked out his Hummer when you were down <laughs> yeah. in, uh, in Houston. So the house, yeah, the house in Houston, there was another, either lunch break or something. No, it was you, actually. Because oh. you were like, Jane, come here. I'm like, what? <laughs> so I follow you out there. And this is when uh, Hummers were the, you know, the big car. Nobody had one back then. I don't know. It was probably 1997 yeah. or so. Yeah, they first and uh, we were like, wow, this is really cool. And it was open. <laughs> so Rick, Rick's like, come on, let's go in. So he gets in the passenger <laughs> side and his little tiny boxing gloves hanging on his rearview mirror. <laughs> And uh, I'm looking over my shoulder. I'm just afraid to see George come around the corner. But we both got in there and kind of sat in there and giggled for a little bit. <laughs> and then left because, yeah. you know, that was our, our our big funny moment for the day. We didn't get caught, fortunately. I don't know what would have happened, but I'm sure George would have been fine. Yeah. <laughs> so it's been about 20 years since the George Foreman Grill first aired. Looking back now, what are some of the biggest lessons and takeaways from this amazingly successful campaign? Well, I mean, one of the, probably the number one thing when everybody thinks of the George Foreman Grill, it was really groundbreaking. I mean, all the things that Rick did, he brought his expertise to this from the Juice Man days, um, you know, starting with the seminar business, then, you know, doing direct and retail, but really taking that expertise um, to the George Foreman Grill and um, not only in the messaging for the, the infomercial, but leveraging and finding the right talent and using the talent in a way that makes the product be enhanced and the whole show be enhanced. But ultimately, the George Foreman Grill is looked at a lot as sort of the benchmark for uh, talent and hosting. At the time, it was hard to get celebrities to endorse an infomercial because there was a lot of schlocky ones out there. It was a bad, you know, it ruined your credibility. You know, people would be afraid to lend their name to these types of shows. But once George had this big success uh, and he showed that you could develop a brand and you could have credibility along with being successful, that really opened the door to using celebrities and, and talent in a way that just didn't exist before. So, yeah, yeah. yeah I, I agree with Jane. I think the biggest thing was it really cemented 
that you could use direct-to-consumer advertising to build a national brand. And, you know, we had done that with the Juice Man, but it, it, on the scale of the, it was nowhere near to the scale of the George Foreman. But to give Sultan credit, they, they, they saw the type of marketing model using direct response television to uh, create sales, build awareness, and drive retail sales. They took that model and we were able to apply it to the George Foreman Grill with in, in incredible success. And it's, it's kind of a, a format that why it's evolved and there's been a whole evolution of the online marketing and the digital marketing. The basic um, concept of how you use TV to uh, do what we call direct branding or help build brands still works. And we use some of those same principles in a lot of the subsequent campaigns we did uh, you know, with other of our successful brands and even recently with the GoPro camera. Yeah, and, and back then, really the formula for a direct response TV program was you got to have a five to six to seven, you know, markup for, you know, seven to one markup for a product to be successful. They didn't have any retail presence. And this sort of broke the mold. It was one of the first infomercials or DRTV campaigns that really showed that, you know, there was a formula after a while that we saw based on the data that we'd collect that we knew how much was sold at retail based on the amount of media we were spending on TV. And there was a direct correlation. So... It was, a, it was really groundbreaking in that respect as well, in terms of driving retail. Yeah, and then um, just a couple other things that to answer your question um, is that I mentioned earlier the auth authenticity. Um, you know, you can see a lot of shows on TV that you just look at what the people are saying and you know they're actors and you know it's fake. And we've always tried to, if you look at a common thread in all of our shows, is really to... Um, sell through education, educating the consumer and let them come to the decision to buy the product, but do it in a way where it's, the, the, the information they're getting is very authentic, whether it's from the testimonials, uh, third-party experts like doctors, or, or even the inventor or the host themselves. And that kind of all started with the, with the George Foreman Grill. Mm. Yeah, we always used real people. I mean, it's a lot of extra work, but they were very authentic, and that comes across. So. Well, thank you both for joining me today. It was great to be able to sit down and go behind the scenes of such a monumental DR campaign. And thank you to all of our listeners. For all the latest industry insights and podcasts, like the one you just heard, subscribe to our blog at cesariodirect.com. And feel free to drop us a line. Contact us at cesariodirect.com. We always love all your comments, questions, and suggestions. Thanks again from all of us here at Cesare Direct. See you soon.